You may be seated, and I'd ask you to take your Bible and turn with me to the book of 2 John as we continue our study. The, sermon, or the song that we just sang, Blessed Assurance, is perfect for this message, as you're going to see that we're looking at the blessings from God. Now, I want you to notice here, uh, if you don't have a sermon outline, lift your hand, and these guys will get one to you uh, so that you can follow along. If you're joining us online, I want you to know that all of our messages, the PDF of them are available for you to download. The outlines are, down, are downloadable. God has blessings for his people. And this little letter that we have been studying, 2 John, opens up to us some of the glorious blessings in the beginning that God would ever have for us. And so this morning as we come to the Word of God, we will pick up where we left off last week in this salutation, in this beginning of the second epistle of John. Do you have your outline now? Notice here with me, and we want to look at the message today, and it is message number two, the blessings of God's truth and love, the blessings of God's truth and love. Now, we've been looking at this idea of truth because John mentions truth over and over and over again. In fact, we see that the Bible has a repeating refrain about truth. We live in a world we're the father of this world when it comes to this present moment. The prince of the power of the air is called the father of lies. And so it is important that we learn the truth. In fact, in our church logo, you remember with me, there's four key values. If we were to say Sheridan Hills is about four key things, the first one that we would mention is what? Is truth. And then we also talk about worship. And worship doesn't just mean music. Worship is about our lives living, giving God the worth, giving God the glory. Worship has to do with worth. And so we're living our lives for the glory of God. But it begins with truth. Worship in community. We live in a world that increasingly is individualistic, increasingly walled off and separated from one another. Um, reducing much of our communication down to just a few characters. Well, that's not true community. When we show you pictures every Sunday morning of community groups and of koinonia groups getting together in each other's homes and all around the city in a setting of fellowship, it's because community is important. When we pray for Elizabeth Nemesh, because she is very, very sick when we pray for the Johns family because our dear brother Billy has departed from us and is now in heaven. Of course, I know many of us, we all want to just go ahead and go be with heaven, uh, go be with Billy. That's how I often feel. But the reason that we do all of these things is because community is important. But the Lord, in, this, in giving us all of this, has not left us here just to serve ourselves. He is commissioned us with an important mission. And our mission is to give him glory in the here and now of our lives and to share his glory with the world around us, to declare his glory and his goodness to the world around us, that we are to say that a savior has died so that you can live. This is being on mission with God. So this key tenet of truth 
we see in this letter. In fact, notice the box on the page. Do you remember with me looking at it last week? We pointed out that truth, 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 truth keeps coming up. Five times in, these, in this little letter it's mentioned. Um, we see over 65 um, times it's mentioned in the Gospel of John. Over 65 times. I want us to see here this idea of truth. Let's review for just a moment from last week. Let's review. Go down there to where the review is. These little letters are 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. 1 John was written to what? Many churches in the Roman province of Asia. 2 John, the one that we're studying now, we've already studied 1 John. 2 John, the one we're studying now, is written to a specific church. And there are specific issues that he is dealing with with that church. And then when we get to it, 3 John is a letter written to a specific person. And so uh, we'll see that as we go. But number two in our review, last week we said, false teachers were persisting all around the churches. False teachers were persisting. And this church needed to be specifically warned. And so that's the context of this letter, very important for us. Look at number three. We noticed last week as we looked at truth that the Bible constantly centers on the theme of truth over and over and over again. In fact, from the very beginning, there's Adam and Eve, and then there's a serpent, okay? So there's Adam, well, there's God, first and foremost, and then we see Adam and Eve entered into the equation. God is speaking truth to them, and then a serpent comes, and he is doing what? He is speaking lies to them. He is deceiving them. So in the very first characters of all of Scripture, we see this issue of truth versus falsehood, truth versus lie. And so all through the Bible, we see that the Word of God is a very big issue. And I'm not just talking about the Bible, but what I'm saying is, is that when God speaks, this is a very big issue to his people, and that he speaks truth while the prince of the power of the air speaks lies. Notice here with me um, the image from last week. This is only on the screen. You remember this one? How much does the Bible speak about truth? This is about one-tenth um, of, the, of the emphasis that are directly related to how the Bible deals with truth. When we went through many of these last week, this is just a, a characterization of how the Bible just completely elevates our concern and elevates our focus upon truth. Now, the world increasingly rejects truth. Fill that in. The world increasingly rejects it. So, so the Bible focuses on it, and the world rejects it. And we see that more and more and more, and more, there, there's a greater hostility in this rejection. Um, we see um, the flagrant re rejection of it in every quarter of our society. Well, what does the church do with this? Well, God has given the earth, the church, the, those who follow Christ, for this purpose, to be the pillar and foundation of the truth in a world that is lost. Now, that's what 1 Timothy chapter 1 or chapter 3 verses 14 and 15 say, that we are to be that which stands and proclaims the truth of God to the world. And so God uses this to bring 
great, the, the message of his truth, the message of his salvation, the message of all that he is um, to the world. So that's a very important aspect of this. And First John and Second John are helping us see this massive importance that is put on the issue of truth. Now, that point number two about false teachers and, and the need for a warning is very, very important because we see that that's a, that's a major purpose of this letter. And what's interesting about that is that just as there were false teachers in the first century when this was actually written, that there have been false teachers all the way through the centuries and even now in these last centuries that we've lived in. We see that there is a growing um, movement of false teachers. Many, many, many who look good, smell good, they have the pearly white teeth and they have, you know, everything that kind of goes with it. And yet we so often see that falsehood is what comes out of their mouths, exactly what First Timothy says. They are appealing to the people's ears, wanting, and, and people will not um, discern properly right teachers versus false teachers, and we see that that problem is being warned of, of this letter. So it's very relevant to us today that we would be aware of that. Well, this morning I want us to continue in our study of verses 1, 2, and 3. Let's read verses 1, 2, and 3. Look what it says. To the, or excuse me, the elder, that's the writer, John, the elder to the elect lady, that's the church, to the elect lady and her children, so this is the church and all of her children. This is those who are in the body of Christ. And notice what he says here. Whom I love in truth. There's the first one. And not only I, but also all who know the truth. So it's not just me, but it's all Christians everywhere that are true Christians following Christ love you and love the truth. Look at verse 2. Because of the truth that, look what it says, abides in us. Can you circle the word abides? We're going to look at that this morning. Because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Very key words that we're going to study. Look at verse 3. Let's read those bold letters together, or those bold words together. Verse 3. Grace, mercy, and peace be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. So we see these blessings, and this is what we want to see this morning, is that, you know, when, you, when we see a salutation in the Word of God, don't just think that that's a, hi, how are you folks, that can be ignored. There is much purpose in the salutations of all of the letters that we see in the New Testament. They are important. They are part of the Word of God. We should study them and see why the, listen, why the Holy Spirit inspired John to write them. And so the, these are not perfunctory addresses. This is, this is everything has a truth, everything have a, has a purpose, 
in it that helps us. And so we're going to be we're going to be stronger in our knowledge of God. We're going to be stronger in our knowledge of the truth. Stronger in our understanding of the whole letter if we see what's in the salutation and if we latch onto it and feed on it as the word of God. So the first phrase I want us to look at is that phrase that I've underlined up there in verse two. Look what it says, because of the truth that abides in us. And this is down toward the bottom of your sheet. Notice what it says, that word abide. Fill in there. What does abide mean? Another synonym for this would be stays. This is the, if it abides, it stays or it remains. Another beautiful picture of this is it indwells. It indwells. It has to do with that which comes in and lives and stays there. In fact, John loves this word. He uses it 60 times as well. He uses truth a lot, but he uses the word abide 60 times in his writings. And so this is a concept that John wants us to see and to understand under the leadership of the Holy Spirit. Number one, fill this in, God's truth indwells true followers of Jesus. God's truth indwells true followers of Jesus. If God's truth does not indwell you, if it does not live within you, if it does not remain in you, then you're not a Christian. Christians are indwelled by the truth of God. Christians don't run in the falsehoods of the world. Christians don't drink in all of the things that are contrary to God's word and live in them. That's not what Christians do. Christians have the Word of God dwelling in them. And how does that happen? Well, the Holy Spirit puts in them a holy desire for truth, a holy desire for God's things. That's why some people come into this church and complain about how long the sermons are, and other people come into this church and say, man, I can't get enough! So, um, I, I just want to encourage you that there's some people that they, that they want to be a part of a church that does not really deal with the truth, that doesn't teach the truth, doesn't preach the truth, doesn't try to live by the truth. They just kind of want to go and mask all of the values of the world into their life and just kind of live by them. I want to say to you that we need to be very, very careful to recognize what this is saying about God's people, the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. So fill this in, notice this, this applies to the church as a corporate body, so the church as a corporate body, the truth dwells in us, but also the church as individual members. Um, Usually, um, we see hints here and there. If it's one or the other, we see hints in the writing that, well, this is talking about the body as a whole, or this is talking about the body as an individual, if it's only supposed to be one or the other. If it's not a visual cue or a linguistic cue that tells you this is talking about the church as a whole, or this is talking about an individual in the church, you can apply most of these truths and most of these principles that you see like this to both the corporate body as well as your individual life. And so notice here with me that this is the application. See, the picture is, is this. The truth 
bottom page, bottom of the page, the truth permeates every aspect of church life, starting with preaching and teaching, and fill that in, starting with preaching and teaching, and then radiating to all other areas like fellowship, ministry, care, mission, etc. So here, here's the picture. I know you're going to turn over the page. That's fine. But here's the picture. As you turn over the page, that's fine. What happens here at this podium sets the course for everything else we do. And that is how it's always been meant to, well, this is how it's always been meant to be. We, we see that the prophets of the Old Testament, they would declare to the people, they would declare the word of God to the people, and that would set the direction of the nation. That was God's intent, God's design that the judges would declare the word of God to the people and they would follow along in that. And then kings came in, corrupt kings came in. We see that and they're in opposition actually to the prophets very often. And then we come to the New Testament and we see that God raises up um, the presbyteros or the episkopos or the poimen, those are the, the pastors of the church, the elders of the church, the presbyters of the church, and their main function, their main function is to preach and to pray as they lead God's people. But it is the preaching of the word that directs a church. Now, we have many churches in this day and time that are absolutely preoccupied with the music. Now, the music is extremely important. We put a lot of emphasis on what we sing. Every single Sunday, we say, be careful to watch the words that we're singing. Notice and rejoice in the words or submit yourself to the words that we're singing because that is very, very important. But let me just say to you that, that, that churches that de-elevate the preaching of the word and elevate either um, some type of musical um, priority or even some type of missional priority are churches that will be off base very shortly because God has designed it that the teaching and the preaching of the word directs us in the direction toward him and in the sanctification of our lives before him. So we, we, we see that the word dwells within us and it dwells within us through the teaching of the gospel. Number two, um, we want to look at this, and I want you to notice the next phrase that will be here. Look in the box on the top of page two where it says, because of the truth that abides in us, that's what we just looked at, and will be with us forever. You see, this is an important phrase for you and I to see in this salutation, that this truth not only lives within us, but now we come to this idea of forever, in my dad's office down in the Keys, uh, he has a little tiny part of one of the bedrooms that's part of his office now, and he has things up on the wall to remind him of important things like pay the power bills so they don't turn it off and do this and do that and everything. But he has right in the center, prominently displayed, is this word, this plaque that says forever. And if you talk to my dad very long and you mention anything about forever, he will start talking about how important it is for us to think about forever. When we begin to think about eternity, we begin to be able to see everything in focus. 
And that's what I want you to see here. I am so thankful that the Holy Spirit inspired John to remind us that the truth that we follow is not truth that is temporal, it's not truth that is going away, but it is truth that is forever. And because that's a, that's a massive concept for us as Christians. In fact, number two, fill it in. God's truth is with believers forever, and this changes everything. This affects everything. And this is so often what we don't recognize, what we don't focus on. We often get stuck in the here and now, or we get stuck at some certain point in history, some certain point in our lives, and we don't see everything in proper context. And so John is wanting them to see that this is the truth that lasts forever. In fact, fill it in here, the reality of eternity is absolutely essential to properly understand God and his word. If Look right here for just a minute. If you, when you think about God and you think about his word and you don't think about the context of eternity, you will never properly understand him. Because God cannot be separated from infinity. Infinity in the past and infinity in the future. To us, we see that God, we operate in time, but we recognize that God uses time for his purposes, but he is not bound by it. Notice the next statement here. A lack of, fill it in, eternal perspective is one of the main reasons for misunderstanding the word and the works of God. If we don't have an eternal perspective as we're reading the Bible and as we're seeing what God is doing in the Bible, we will misunderstand. There will be aspects of it that simply don't make sense to us. Notice the next part here. Attempting to understand God's actions, plans, motives, purposes without eternal perspective is like viewing something either totally out of focus or without proper keyword here or keywords here depth of field. And so I want us to kind of think about this. I want, to, want you to see that sentence again. Attempting to understand God's actions, plans, motives, and purposes without eternal, focus, without eternal perspective is like viewing something either totally out of focus or without proper depth of field. Now, I'm, I'm not going to focus on, on just the idea of focus right now. Um, you all know what that looks like. Have you ever seen something that's just the whole thing is totally out of focus? It's just blurred. You see a picture or a video or something, um, or maybe if you take off your glasses and you're like blurred, you know, you're, you're not nearsighted, you're not farsighted, you're just, you're blind. Uh, you, you can't see very well. Um, and it's all blurry. Okay, so that is certainly part of the problem. But the thing that I've been thinking about and praying about this week, as I was looking at this word forever, and I was thinking about you and I was thinking about me, I was thinking about our Bible reading, I was thinking about our lives that we're living, I was thinking about this importance of why God wants us to see that his truth is forever. And as I was thinking about that, I, I was just thinking about this idea of depth of field and and I want you to see a concept here. And this comes from photography. Several years ago when we moved overseas, I kind of 
I bought my first SLR camera, digital SLR camera, Nikon D70 at the time, and it was kind of the latest, greatest, and I was learning about photography, and I started to learn about this idea of depth of field. And I want you to see these. The, the first image that is here um, is, and this is the top image, we notice a narrow depth of field. Now, what do we mean by that? It's the portion of what you're looking at that is in focus. Now, there's, first of all, there's a focal distance. You see that long distance between the camera and, in this case, the little bear that's out there in the field. There's a bear out there in the field. And so you say, okay, that's the focal distance, out to where he is. But after we get to where he is and that we're focused on him, how much of the foreground and how much of the background is in focus? Now, you can adjust that. You change the aperture. You change the aperture from being very small or being middle-sized or being very large. When you change the aperture of your shutter, you are changing how long the focal distance is or, or how long the depth of field is. I want you to notice this on the outline here. You can see the top one has a very narrow depth of field. And let's zoom in on that right here. And look at the screen, if you would, for just a minute. Notice that only the things right around the subject, only the things right around, in this case, the bear, is in focus. You can see the grass is in focus. The bear's ears are in focus. This is a very narrow depth of field, but everything before it and everything after it is out of focus. But now let's go to the large depth of field. A large depth of field or a wide depth of field, it's pretty much everything is in focus. In fact, the lower part of this diagram here, you can even see that um, much of the grass leading up to the camera is in focus, maybe a little bit of it, and right there around the lens is not. But you can see all the way to the mountains in the distance, and the trees are in focus. So this is a large depth of field. Um, so as we, as we look at this, why a photography lesson, lesson? I want you to notice the statement that is underneath this. We often have an extremely narrow de depth of field when viewing a particular event in life or scripture. And I want us to see, um, actually go back to some photography things to, to let you see this a little bit. Look at this picture of a bear. Here's a bear in Slovenia. And he's out there in the woods. Now, I want you to notice, um, and Marcy, if you can get my laser out of the pocket of my, of my bag there. Um, I want you to notice, in the foreground, is that in good focus? No. In the background, behind the bear, is that in good focus? No, it's not. So this is a, a narrow depth of field. You just see the bear. Look at the next one here, and this is a little bit bigger bear, and you, this is actually um, a better example of that, because notice here on the screen, look at all this right down here. Is that in focus? No. Is the tree in focus and the bear in focus? Pretty good. What about this back here? No. So we're just, we're focusing on this. That's what we see clearly. Now, our family lived in Europe, and we hiked a lot when we lived in Europe. Kind of felt like the Von Trapp family. And here we are um, at, a, at a mountain that's overlooking Mont Blanc. So Mont Blanc is behind us um, right there. But I want you to notice here, in this picture, the grass is in focus. And notice this. A few miles away, these mountain peaks are also in focus. 
This is a very wide depth of field. Look at the next picture here. This is the valley looking down on that particular day. Rocks down here at the foreground are completely in focus. And peaks, mountain peaks, far, far away, though they're much smaller, they're still in focus. On that particular day, we came across these um, ibex um, animals that were out there uh, marching around. Here's another example where we see great focus here, but what do we see back here? It's blurred. When we look at life and when we look at the things that God has done and we only look at the particular place where they are standing in history or standing in the course of our lives and we don't see the broader context, we can really misunderstand God. Human beings tend to focus narrowly, and that's what I want you to see in this statement um, uh, underneath the box. We often have an extremely narrow depth of field when viewing a particular event in life or Scripture. Sometimes when you're reading the Bible and you see what God does somewhere in someone's life or in the nation's life, nation of Israel, and you say, man, that seems harsh, or wow, can you believe how badly this went for them or how messed up this was. And we only focus on that and we don't see the broader picture of what God is doing, we can come up with wrong conclusions. In fact, look at the next statement. This can cause great misunderstanding of God's actions. We can draw many incorrect conclusions. But when we have a larger depth of field, We can see God's actions in greater context over, uh, the greater context of his overall plan. Now, um, I I just want you to see, and and notice the, the next screen that is here and the statement that is there. God's people, that's you and me, God's people need to have in perspective the overall plan of God that includes, and here's the key word, Eternity. Eternity, the word forever, is what fixes a lot of problems that we deal with in our misunderstanding because God has a grand plan for eternity. And when we don't consider the forever, as John is calling us to consider, we can get really messed up. And when we don't see, in fact, think about these folks that are here listed. Um, There are many examples of this in Scripture. Consider carefully each of these accounts. Think about Job. Job loses everything. Go read Job Job chapter 1. And if you stop at chapter 1 and you don't see what all God is doing with Job's life and what all is being played out, not just, listen to this, not just for Job, But for all people of God who would come after Job and hear about what happened with Job, we we all benefit from the big picture. We all benefit from Job's trouble. We all benefit from starting to see how God is working and how he transcends the trouble of a fallen world for his purposes. Notice the next one here. Abraham Abraham is told to sacrifice his son Isaac. Now, if you you only focus right there and you don't have anything else in focus in this, 
That's really, really hard. And yes, faith is what we have to focus on in that moment. But if that's as far as it went, we would be in trouble. Notice the next one here. Joseph is sold into slavery in Egypt. And why? Because he was faithful, and he was faithful to his dad. He's thrown into a well. He's pulled up out of the well, sold to a caravan headed for Egypt. He gets hauled off to another country. He's in Egypt, and while he's there, he winds up in Potiphar's house. He's falsely accused. He winds up in prison, and he's sitting there in prison waiting for what, what's next. And just think about it. I mean, certainly for, for Joseph, this was requiring a tremendous amount of faith in God, but that's part of what was there. And then we see in the grand scheme of things, and we go all the way to Genesis chapter 50, and it's in Genesis chapter 50 where Joseph looks at his brothers and says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. You see, what if he had only focused on what you did to me when you threw me in that well and then hauled me out of it and sold me to a caravan headed to Egypt? What if he only focused there? You see, people of faith have to see and trust the greater picture that God has. What about Gideon? (laughs) I love the story of Gideon. Do you remember the story of Gideon? Here the story is Gideon. Opposing army is coming, and Gideon has 22,000 that are there. And the Lord says this, you know, if they fight with all 22,000, they're going to think they did it. So let's I don't, I don't want them to think that they did it. I want to show them I'm going to do this. And so he says, Gideon, tell everybody who's afraid to go home. Well, right there, 12,000 people get up and leave. 12,000 people stand and leave. And then we go through another series of tests. And the bottom line is, it goes from 22,000 people ready to, for the battle to 300. And with 300, God defeats the enemy. And what was the point? I did it, not you guys. I did it, not you. Now, when Gideon is being told, let all these people go home, and he's just focused on that, Lord, um, is that really a good strategy? That's not what I was taught. But we see that in the grander picture, we see. How about this one? Moses dead ends at the Red Sea. He's standing there on the, the edge of the Red Sea with the nation of Israel, and Pharaoh's army is coming. That doesn't look good at that moment. And then he sees what God has called him to do. He steps out into the water, and as he steps out into the water, his foot goes onto dry ground. The waters are parted. The nation is gloriously, supernaturally, radically, unmistakably saved by God. And there we see, once again, God's deliverance, teaching a people. But it didn't look good when they're standing there at the water's edge. How about Joseph's fiance named Mary? She turns up pregnant. How would you feel about that? We kind of know what Joseph felt about it. He was going to kind of put her away quietly. The idea was he's going to call off the engagement and already give her a writ of divorcement uh, so that she's not publicly humiliated, enough enough humiliation for her, she's pregnant. We all know how you get pregnant. And so he walks away from that. And then, of course, the Lord says, Joseph, the child that is with Mary is from the Holy Spirit. And we begin to see a grander picture, a broader, longer, larger focal length. 
Lazarus dies before Jesus makes it to him. And of course, this was Jesus's, this was Jesus's plan. Um, Jesus did not go immediately to Lazarus. He allowed him to die. And that was part of God's grand plan. So Lazarus would die and go to the grave one week before Jesus would die and go to the grave. Lazarus would die, go to the grave, and be resurrected one week before Jesus would die and go to the grave and be resurrected. Do you see that God had a plan with that? God was working in the proclamation of his work with the, with the disciples in order for them to see what was happening. God has a plan. Now, it gets a little bit harder when we talk about John the Baptist and when we talk about many other people like this. John the Baptist so close to the Lord Jesus, proclaiming faithfully the Lord Jesus, the one that Jesus would say, there's never been a man like him. John the Baptist is beheaded. And John the Baptist is not reheaded and raised from the dead. John the Baptist, this is the end of his life, but we, we see that God had a plan in preparing the way of the Messiah and showing that John the Baptist's life does not end with Herod and his daughter calling for the execution of John the Baptist, we see that John the Baptist has a role that God is going to expand into eternity that is far greater and far grander. A great place for you to go this afternoon is Hebrews chapter 11. In fact, would you put a big circle around Hebrews chapter 11? I want to encourage you to read Hebrews chapter 11 this afternoon. I want to encourage you to read Hebrews chapter 11 and see what it says about all these who have gone before us. It's called the Hall of Faith. All of these who were faithful to God and how many of them were torn, into, torn to pieces, sawn in two, condemned, stoned, left for dead. I mean, we see this over and over and over again that there is a grander picture that goes beyond this life that is so very beautiful. You see, for his true people, fill it in, God saves the best for last. That's what God does. God saves the best for last. Our best life is not now, Joel Osteen. Our best life is not now. If this is your best life, I pity you. Listen, friends, our best life is to come in every way. I mean, God comes and does a great work in our lives. He brings joy in our lives. He comes and he shows us many things. But let me tell you that there is pain and there is sorrow and there is suffering in a fallen world that God is in the process of redeeming and revealing his redemptive nature. That's what this time period is for. That's why we live in the era that we live is that we are learning about God. We're learning about the grace of God, the forgiveness of God, the mercy of God, the power of God, and so that when we get to heaven, we will be able to say, we know the heart of this God, not in just a sinless environment, but we know the heart of this God even in a sinful environment where we were from, that he plucks us out of it and he shows us his redemptive and glorious power. In fact, notice with me the passage there at the bottom, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 9. 
No eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor heart has imagined what God has prepared. Underline that part too. What God has prepared. This is the forever, right below that. Forever, right heaven below that. What God has prepared for those who, what does that scripture say? For those who love him. You see, your job is not to straighten out and to avoid all the pain and straighten out all the problems. Your job is to love him. He takes care of the rewards. He is the one who knows what he's doing in the grand scheme of things. And so we need an eternal perspective. When we don't have an eternal perspective, we miss out. We need the broad focal link of an eternal perspective in Christ. Notice number three. Notice number three. God's truth blesses true followers of Jesus. God's truth blesses true followers of Jesus. And we see this in verse three. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us. From God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. Now, I want you to notice this with me, that God promises blessings. That's what we were just singing about, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. You see, that's the eternity. We're headed toward glory. And this blessed security that we have in him, well, where does that security come? We see these three key words, grace, mercy, and peace. Now, we could say this. That as these progress, notice this, this is God's salvation plan. His grace leads to his mercy, and his mercy is that which gives his peace, makes peace with us, and gives his peace to us. Notice these passages that highlight these, these key blessings. Romans 5, verse 20. Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, what? What happened? Read it out loud. Grace abounded all the more. You see, this is where our salvation comes from. It begins with God's grace. Ephesians 1, 7. Notice what it says. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to what? The riches of his grace. Notice the next part, Titus 3, 5. He saved us, not because of works done in righteous, by us in righteousness. You see, you're not saved by works. You're not saved by being good. He saved us, not by works done in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. If you're saved, it's because of his mercy, not your goodness. And then how does he do it? By the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes and works in our hearts. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 talks about this glorious peace and this mercy. Notice, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his what? His great mercy has called us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This mercy brings his peace. Lotus, Colossians chapter 1 and verse 19, and here we see the peace For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him, right above that him, Jesus. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him, that's Jesus, 
and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And look what it says, read, underlined, read the underlined part, by making peace through the blood of his cross. You see, salvation comes from God, and what John is saying to us as part of his salutation is he is reminding us that it is grace, mercy, and peace that comes to us, and how does it come to us? Look what it says at the top, from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son. Now, just a hint, that is part of John, in part, is dealing with some of the heresies that were circulating around in the churches. There were heresies. There was false doctrines about who Jesus was. There were false doctrines about whether Jesus was a phantom or whether Jesus was really real. And he, as an eyewitness, is saying to them, no, let me tell you who Jesus is and let me tell you how important it was that you understand who he is, that he was indeed from God the Father, and he was the Father's Son. So he is, he's making very clear, in a veiled way, dealing with one of the heresies that has already popped up. So look at the middle of the page there. In verse 3 it says, from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son. He, here he is, he's clearing to find it. You see, these blessings don't just happen. These blessings come through the sacrifice of Christ. You see, John reminds us over and over, there's a divine source of these blessings. And notice in James chapter 1, this, this goes right along with what God says in James chapter 1. Every good thing given, it's talking about blessings, every good thing given, and every perfect gift is from where? It's from above. Coming down from who? the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. So that's God the Father. Look at 2 Corinthians 1.20. Let's read 2 Corinthians 1.20 out loud together. Everybody read it. For all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. You see, everything that we have comes through the Messiah of Christ. This is what opens the door for God's blessings. It is God himself coming to deliver us from our sins and bring to us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And John wants us to be reminded that our salvation and our grace to make it through life and the peace that God would give us, this all comes from the Father through the Son and he does it in truth and love. And so we're being reminded, we follow the truth, don't follow the falsehoods. The falsehoods won't lead you to these things. And why does God give us these things through the truth? And he does it because of his love. And that's where we want to end today. Notice the bottom part here. In verse 3, it says, in truth and in love he does this. So all the blessings of grace, mercy, and peace come to us in truth and love. This is, fill it in, the great motivation of God for our salvation is his love. Do you know the reason he saves you? If you're his, you know the reason he saves you? is because he loves you. He loves you. He loves you with an everlasting love. In Zephaniah it says, he dances over you. 
He rejoices over you. And he loves you enough that when you sin against him, he still loves you. I know you're packing up, but look at this. You're missing out. (laughs) Why did he send his son? Well, we could quote John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. But look what 1 John 4, 9 says. Very similarly, look what it says. In this, the love of God, circle those words. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. It was shown to us. So here's the motivation. His love. That God sent his only son into the world And for what purpose? So that we might live through him. And live for him for how long? Forever. You see why forever is important? Forever is important. We need to broaden our depth of field when we read the Bible. We need to broaden our depth of field when we experience life. We need to broaden out to see all the way into eternity that God says, what eye has not seen, what ear has not heard, nor has any heart ever imagined the great things that I have in store for those who love me, he says. Would you stand with me for prayer? Lord, very often instead of coming and drinking deeply of your word, we stand at the fountain and just gargle. Instead of deeply drinking, we swish your word around in our mouth and sometimes we'll even spit it out. Say, I don't understand that. Or I don't like that. Lord, forgive us for such a fickle and lazy heart. Lord, your word is rich and it's deep and it fits together like lock and key. It fits together in this present life and Lord, it extends most importantly into all of eternity. Lord, so often we elevate this present life. We make this the big issue. When, Lord, we should be thinking about eternity. We should be thinking about forever. Lord, when we think about forever, many of the temptations of this life come to be just stupid. When we think about forever, Lord, the hardness of our heart can melt away. The unforgiveness that we harbor in this present moment becomes so evidently foolish. Or Lord, the fear that we hold for the day or for maybe even our whole lifetime here When we see eternity, it makes no sense. So Lord, I pray that we would see what your word says. I pray that we would be living 
in etern- with eternity in mind. And I pray that we would see that grace, mercy, and peace are given to us in truth and in love, and that this is eternal. And it all focuses on what Jesus did when he came and he took upon himself the sins that we have bore. He bears them himself, takes them all the way to the grave, and rises again to overcome them so that we are no longer held by them. I pray that we would live as Christians with eternity on our mind, with joy, with faith, with hope, with holiness, so that you would be glorified and that we would be edified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.